Hello, and welcome back to Cranbox Politics, a project devoted to coloring outside the normal political spectrum in order to create a new political landscape for those of us left behind by two-color politics. This episode will be the final installment in our three-part series on reproductive rights, with a focus on abortion. In the first episode, I opened with the discussion about abortion in early America. That discussion centered around the fact that abortion was a largely accepted and practiced procedure by wealthy white women. I need to take a quick pause and go down a quick rabbit hole here because some readers have responded to that episode by stating that the only reason that wealthy white women or any women in general during the early American era sought abortions was because of the fact that they viewed that as the least worst option in the event that they had an extramarital affair. No one wanted to be forced to bear the burden of having to wear the scarlet letter, so to speak, of being an adulteress. And while this is true for the most part, another major reason that women sought abortion was because of their concern for their own lives. You see, back then, the death rate, the maternal death rate during labor and during pregnancy was much higher than the death rate that was caused by botched abortions. That being said, the point of this series is not to suss out and validate the reasonings for getting an abortion. The point of this series is to discuss the origins and the legality of abortion care in this nation. The reasoning for why a woman would want to get an abortion while being important to the overall discussion is not a central piece of the discussion that we are having in this series. The American healthcare system as a whole was largely unregulated at the birth of our nation. Even remedies meant to induce abortions were billed as something other than they were. Some were called the agents intended to remove blockages, while others were remedies intended to restore the natural flow of a woman. Now, we'll get into the American healthcare system in our next series, but the reason that I brought up how the American healthcare system appeared during the early days of our nation is because I wanted to emphasize that there was no formal process by which healthcare was administered. And women, for the most part, managed the reproductive healthcare of other women in their community. These practitioners were called midwives. Now, if you'll remember back to the first episode, the establishment of the American Medical Association and the advent of the Second Great Awakening resulted in laws that restricted the ability for midwives to do their jobs. These laws and restrictions came to a head with changing social understandings as well as the understanding that the maternal death rate, 
the maternal mortality rate, was steadily increasing because, one, women were dying as they were giving birth, but more importantly, women were dying as a result of black market, unregulated, unsupervised abortion care outside of the law. In our second episode, I reviewed the ruling in Roe v. Wade which was a case brought before the Supreme Court after access to abortion had largely been criminalized nationwide. In that episode, I talked about how the ruling in Roe versus Wade resulted in a political fire being lit that polarized our nation into two camps, pro-life and pro-choice. In this episode, I will review how the polarization of our nation came to a head and resulted in the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, or what I will call Dobbs. We're going to examine the ruling and the case and then break apart the arguments both for and against abortion. Disclaimer, this installment will end with the opinions and assessments of myself, Carl Abel, based entirely on the research conducted over the last few months, and tied to my own personal beliefs. The reason for the preface about opinion is that I want to be clear that while I am striving to color outside the political line, it is important to paint opinions as opinions and not as facts. I know that I am not the foremost expert on the issue of reproductive health care. I know that I will not be the expert or the authority on most of the topics that we will discuss throughout the duration of this project. And while I may form my own opinions and beliefs based on the research that I do, I am open to debate and discussion about the points that I make here on this platform. That being said, If you wish to raise a concern or want to shine light on facts that may sway my opinion, then please send me a message using the contact form on the website or even drop a comment on your favorite podcasting app. All right, so what was the case of Dobbs all about? What caused the Supreme Court to override 50 years of legal precedent? Let's go ahead and start by reviewing Roe and Doe. Roe, if you recall, defined a fetus as potential life, but not a human being, and also set a standard for abortion access at a defined point, not to be limited prior to the end of the first trimester. Doe went further to determine that the state could not justifiably limit abortions if the procedure was sought based on maternal health. In the 1990s, the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Southeastern Pennsylvania v. Casey that the protections afforded under the Constitution did not limit bans to the first trimester. Instead, it allowed for a new standard by which abortion bans could be established, called the Undue Burden Rule. Now, while Casey upheld the Supreme Court ruling that the Constitution protected the right to abortion. It opened the door to laws that would pursue loopholes within its own undue burden clause 
and allow for the restriction of abortion, almost to the point of eliminating abortion completely in some states. In 2019, the Center for Reproductive Rights filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Jackson Women's Health Organization. This lawsuit is what we now know as Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health Organization. In the lawsuit, the Center for Reproductive Rights alleged that the Mississippi law violated the rights of pregnant women established by the precedent set by the ruling in Roe and Casey when it created a ban on abortions past the 15-week period. The case reached the Supreme Court after a district court ruled in favor of the Jackson Women's Health Organization and placed a pause on the enforcement of the Mississippi abortion ban. In its challenge to the district court ruling, the state of Mississippi initially contended that the law was consistent with the Roe decision, but quickly changed its contention, seeking to overturn the Roe decision completely following the confirmation of conservative Justice Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. And, in the spring of 2022, the Supreme Court ruled that the decisions in both Roe and Casey were incorrect and that the interpretation of the Constitution by the justices who ruled on Roe and Casey was invalid based on faulty historical analysis. So, Overturning a Supreme Court ruling is not something to take lightly. Similar to the way that Congress doesn't take lightly its job of providing the check of impeachment on the president, the Supreme Court, similarly, does not take lightly its ability to overturn rulings from previous courts. In deciding to overturn a ruling, the Supreme Court has to look at five factors. Those factors are the nature of the court's error, the quality of the reasoning in the previous ruling, the workability of the ruling, the effect on other areas of law should the ruling be overturned, and reliance interests on the previous ruling that would be affected in the event that the ruling was overturned. In the case of Dobbs, the Supreme Court ruled that the justices who passed the ruling in Roe misinterpreted the historical references of our nation. The Supreme Court ruled that the justices in Roe ignored the historical context of the rise of legislation that restricted abortion access and identifying abortion as deeply rooted in American history and traditions. So that is what the Supreme Court justices decided was the nature of the court's error in the ruling under Roe. Injecting my opinion here, based on my own research, which we have discussed thoroughly in the first two episodes of this series, I would have to disagree with the court's point of view that abortion does not have a deep root in American history and traditions, given the fact that abortion at the very onset of our nation was legal and commonplace. I contend that the rise of the laws 
against abortion did not come around until 40 years after the birth of our nation. And even then, those laws did not attack abortion as a total ban. Instead, those laws banned abortion after what we know as the quickening, which, based on science, occurred around 21 weeks. I would argue here that the nature of the court's error is that our current Supreme Court failed to take into account the historical references in its decision in Dobbs. In the second factor, the Supreme Court found that the decision in Roe established a set of rules that appeared to be similar to those of statutes or regulations that would normally be passed by a legislative body. The Supreme Court also found that Roe ignored the state consensus of laws that banned abortion in 1868. They also determined that Roe failed to justify its distinctions between pre- and post-viability abortions. Injecting my opinion again, I would have to concur with this understanding of the quality of reasoning that was put forth by the Supreme Court in the case of Dobbs. The argument that the justices that ruled in the case of Roe established a set of laws that would normally be passed by a Congress or a state legislative body is accurate. I don't agree that the justices who passed the ruling in Roe ignored the state consensus of laws banning abortion in 1868, given the fact that they concurred and understood what those laws set forth as far as bans and established a specific time period by which bans could not be enforced. Lastly, I would agree that the justices in Roe did fail to justify the distinction between pre- and post-viability abortions, that by establishing an arbitrary date by which an abortion could no longer be conducted, they didn't account for advances in science and they did not allow for changes in the way that we preserve life. This sets a dangerous situation in which a morality issue arises and that morality issue deals with the preservation of life. In the third factor, the Supreme Court in reviewing both Casey and Roe, determined that modification of the standard from trimester base under Roe to the undue burden test under Casey resulted in a vague interpretability of the undue burden test and was not capable of drawing a solid line between permissible and unconstitutional. Here, too, I concur with the justices that ruled in Dobbs. The undue burden test, while a good attempt at trying to take into account the scientific advancements that had occurred since Roe to when Casey was ruled, failed to establish a solid understanding of what the law actually meant. And while Casey upheld the rights to privacy and the rights to abortion being protected under the Constitution, it failed to establish left and right lateral limits 
in order to provide legislative bodies with the knowledge that they were passing laws that were within the realms of the Constitution. It opened up the ability for legislative bodies to pass laws and put them to the test through the judicial process in order to determine whether or not those laws were constitutional. Essentially, the ruling in Casey resulted in the removal of abortion laws from the political realm and placed those laws into the realm of the judiciary branch, forcing the judiciary branch to establish enforceability of laws, which is not constitutionally the responsibility of the judicial branch. In the fourth factor, the Supreme Court ruled that the decisions of Roe and Casey affected other areas of law, specifically distorting many unrelated but very important legal doctrines. Now, I don't know if distorting is the right word to use here, but what I will say is that I agree in a sense, and my agreement goes back to the previous comments about how the ruling in Casey specifically took abortion legislation, took abortion bans, took abortion laws, took the politics of abortion, and removed it from the legislative bodies, and instead handed it to the Supreme Court and the justice system in order for them to hammer out what the law actually was and what the enforceability of the laws were under the Constitution. In the fifth and final factor, the Supreme Court ruled that overturning Rowan Casey would not impact any interest that relied on the ruling of Roe and Casey. You see, the Supreme Court ruled that based on Casey, returning the ability for the states to regulate access to abortion would not impair or cause detriment to reproductive health care because abortions were not spontaneous, and as such, any affected parties that had to deal with bans in their state would have time to adjust their plans to account for changes and restrictions. The Supreme Court also emphasized that while Roe and Casey influenced other decisions, a ruling to overturn both would apply strictly to those cases and would not affect any other decisions. More of my opinions here, I would have to disagree. You see, overturning Roe and Casey on the fact that the Constitution does not protect abortion because it does not state abortion anywhere within the Constitution is a problem. And that problem is that it opens the door for challenges to other constitutional protections that were determined to be the case under rulings by the Supreme Court. Those include rulings on contraceptives, rulings on same-sex marriages, rulings on interracial marriages, all of which have been established as being protected by the implicit right to privacy that is given to us under the Constitution. However, because the arguments for those cases 
are the exact same arguments that were used in order to ensure that Roe resulted in the ruling that it resulted in means that now those rights, those constitutional rights, are open to challenge. As we all know, and history being what it is, based on its findings in the review of those five factors, the Supreme Court determined that it had a clear mandate to overturn Roe and return the debate to the individual states. As expected, the Dobbs ruling was an immense blow to the pro-choice movement, and similar to the way that the decision in Roe invigorated the pro-life movement, the ruling in Dobbs injected new motivation to return to the argument about reproductive health. Abortion is an issue based on societal morals. As such, access is determined by the morals that a society has. There's no way to find a solution to the argument in three blog posts, and I didn't set out to create or identify what that solution is. The only intent is to establish a dialogue now by which we can find that middle ground together. The way that we do that is by examining both sides of the argument and then put forth a proposition that spurs that conversation and hopefully result in our ability to bridge the divide and allow us to find common ground upon which the morals of both sides can be respected. When it comes to the pro-life argument, the base is centered on a contention that abortion is akin to murder. You see, the pro-life movement uses a logic that a fetus is a human being, and because human beings have a fundamental right to life, that fetus also has the fundamental right to life. The logic continues that if it is wrong to kill a human being who possesses the right to life, then it is also wrong to kill a fetus because it too possesses the right to life. This logical line of argumentation is based in the fetal personhood argument, specifically that the fetus's potential to become a human person and enjoy the valuable life common to human persons, entails that its destruction is prima facie morally impermissible. One argument used to justify this logic is that the fetus has the capability to feel pain. However, scientifically it has been determined that the neuroanatomical apparatus required for pain and sensation is not complete until about 26 weeks. Now, in my research, I've gone through and there's a lot of medical jargon that talks to the sensors and the receivers and the pain receptacles being around and located in the fetus at specific stages of development. However, scientists have deemed that the process by which those pain receptors can fire and be received and interpreted by the brain does not occur until that 26 weeks. Therefore, based on the fact that the upper limit worldwide for termination of pregnancy is 24 weeks, and most pregnancies are terminated well before this, the argument on the ability of the fetus to feel pain doesn't apply because at the time of the abortion, the fetus scientifically cannot feel pain. Finally, 
the logic used to justify personhood is itself flawed. Specifically, that when you break it down, the logic in an algebraic formula sounds something like this. If x has the potential to become y, then x is y and should be treated as such. The problem here is that we don't apply that logic to other areas where x has the potential to become y. One example is that children have the potential to become adults, and yet we treat them as children because their maturity and growth levels don't put them in a spot where they can be treated and trusted the way that adults can be treated and trusted. Another example that I found in my research is that the Prince of Wales has the potential to become the king, and yet the Prince of Wales is not treated to the same benefits and pomp and circumstance as the King of England. Therefore, when it comes to the logic formula of if X has the potential to become Y, then X is Y and should be treated as such is flawed because we don't apply that same logic across the board equally. Also, during my research, I discovered the origin of that abortion is murder argument. And that origin is that it was invented, perpetuated, and executed by male doctors in the mid-19th century. Sometime around the establishment of the American Medical Association and the rise of the Second Great Awakening. In their initial arguments against abortion, those male doctors painted women seeking abortions as murderesses devoid of morals, punishing babies for their own failings. On the other side of the coin, the pro-choice argument revolves around two key arguments, personal autonomy and maternal health. According to the pro-choice camp, abortion bans preclude patient moral decision-making by implicitly forcing one individual's morals and views of what is right and wrong onto another person, who may or may not share the same views. The movement goes on to argue that there is no single definition of fetal personhood that medical professionals rally around. Instead, they lean on the moral argument that the only person who can determine fetal personhood is the person in which the fetus lives. Now, that argument is based in the old process by which a woman determined when the quickening occurred because it was only the woman who could decide that she had felt the baby move. The pro-choice movement employs two different and distinct logic flows. The first is that only human beings have the right to life. A fetus is not a human being, and therefore a fetus does not have the right to life. And if a being has no right to life, it is not wrong to kill it. Therefore, it is not wrong to kill a fetus. So essentially, what they are saying is that X is not Y. And because X is not Y, X should not be treated as Y. Therefore, X should be treated as X. The alternative logic flow takes into account that perhaps a fetus is a person. 
In this logic flow, it is determined that in certain circumstances, the right to life afforded a person may be overridden by other factors, given, hypothetically, that a fetus is a human with a right to life. Its right to life may be overridden by other factors. And if a being's right to life is overridden, it is not wrong to kill the being. Therefore, it is not wrong to kill the fetus if certain factors occur. Now, I know that's a lot. So what I'll say is to break it down just a little bit more. The pro-life camp has two different viewpoints. The first viewpoint is that a fetus is not a person and is not a human being and therefore cannot be afforded the same rights and privileges that a human being would be afforded. And that to kill a fetus is not akin to murder because the fetus is not a human being. Alternatively, the pro-choice camp also has people who fundamentally believe that the fetus does have the potential to become a human being and is a human being in and of itself. However, the contention is that because it is living within the mother, it is subject to the forfeiture of its right to life in the event that certain circumstances occur. And in these certain circumstances, you will see that they arise out of circumstances surrounding pregnancies as a result of rape, or pregnancies as a result of incest, or pregnancies that result in the mother's health deteriorating, possibly even death in, during labor. More recently, we saw an instance where a young girl had become impregnated by a member of her own family after being molested, and yet, because of the ban in her state, was not able to receive or undergo an abortion procedure that would save her life. When it comes to maternal health, the United States is the only developed country with a rising maternal mortality rate that disproportionately affects black women. The rates are significantly lower in states with protected access to abortion, and those rates being reduced also includes in the black community. So essentially, based on the numbers, access to abortion care is directly connected to maternal mortality. A study of maternal death rates between the year 1998 and 2004 revealed that during that time frame, the risk of death from childbirth was 14% higher than that of death from abortion. That study also found that the risk of physical and physiological harm was greatly reduced when women were able to gain access to their desired form of abortion. Pro-life proponents point to health risks associated with abortions as a means by which to claim that abortion is unsafe and harms the mother. There are three main points that they look to. The first is a condition called post-abortion syndrome, or PASS. PASS is a physiological condition that pro-life proponents point to in which women who undergo the abortion process suffer from depression and anxiety. Now, some of my listeners have brought this up, and I looked into it. And what I found is that a Norwegian study, in order to determine if PASS is a certifiable condition, found that the rate of 
psychiatric contact is similar both before and after a first trimester abortion. Because of the lack of evidence supporting the validity of PATHs, the condition doesn't even appear in the DSMV, also known as the Handbook for Mental Health, and the link between abortion and mental health problems is dismissed by organizations tasked with mental health protection. Studies have also determined that while women don't generally suffer long-term mental health effects related to the abortion, short-term guilt and sadness was far more likely if the women came from a background where abortion was viewed negatively or their decisions were decried. Essentially, what they found is that for women who grew up and who were raised to believe that abortion was wrong, suffered from short-term regret for the actions that they had done. However, in the longer run, they didn't suffer from any depression associated to abortion or post-abortion. The second health risk that pro-life proponents point to is called the abortion breast cancer conjecture, or ABC. You see, during the political debate that followed the ruling in Roe, the pro-life movement pointed to a rise in breast cancer as being associated with the rise in access and conduct of abortive procedures. These arguments employed studies that found direct links to breast cancer and abortion. Those studies were conducted using something called the case-controlled method, which has been deemed to be a methodologically unsound method because of its inherent risk to recall bias. The example used in the research is that someone who already has cancer has less to lose than someone who is healthy in admitting that they had undergone an abortion. Therefore, in those controlled studies, the bias was the ability for the individual who was taking part in the study to be honest about whether or not they had undergone an abortion procedure. Contrasting that procedure, another method is known as the historical cohort study. It's a longer-term study, but it's been deemed to be more methodologically sound. There have been two studies utilizing historical cohorts in order to determine the risk of breast cancer as being associated with abortive procedures. And neither of those two studies found an increased risk of breast cancer associated with first trimester abortion. Based on those two studies, organizations like the WHO, the National Cancer Institute, the American College for Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists support a position that claims that the risk of cancer based on abortive procedures just isn't there. And therefore, any claim to the contrary is not credible. The third condition is that abortion reduces fertility. Now, this one actually has a little bit of scientific fact underneath it. And that scientific fact rises out of a study that linked an out-of-date surgical procedure, specifically the dilation and curatage method, or DNC method, 
which had an inherent but small risk of scarring that could potentially lead to complications resulting in a reduced fertility rate. However, that technique has become obsolete and has been replaced with the much safer and more effective suction method that came around in the 1970s. That method is today recommended by the WHO for all surgical abortions. So, those are the arguments. Now the question is, what do we do with all that information? It's quite a bit. And my opinion is that, at first glance, it seems like the pro-life argument really has no legs to stand on from a scientific point of view. Whereas the pro-choice movement holds a little bit more water under it scientifically and connects to personal autonomy as their primary stance. However, morality plays a part in both arguments. The problem with this is that morality often trumps science. If a person has a moral objection to something, it is nearly impossible to overcome that objection with science. Morals are learned, morals are emotional, morals are a founding principle of how people live their lives. That fact alone is what leads to the difficulty that lies in the argument about abortion access. Discussion about abortion often trigger an emotional response that cause both sides to completely shut down and stop listening to one another. Personally, I ascribe to the belief that abortion is wrong. Now, before you stop the podcast and completely dismiss everything that I have said thus far, let me explain. You see, I don't ascribe to the belief that abortion is wrong because I don't believe what science tells me. You see, my belief is that every fetus has the potential to be the next Einstein or Thomas Edison. And that an abortion ends that potential. I don't believe that we need to treat that fetus, which has the potential to be the next Einstein or Thomas Edison, as the next Einstein or Thomas Edison. What I do believe is that we should give that fetus as much chance and opportunity to become the next Einstein or Thomas Edison as we possibly can. However, I also ascribe to the belief that a woman has the right to determine what she wants to do with her body. And just as every individual makes daily choices, those choices are made with the knowledge that the choices have consequences. And I firmly believe that abortion should be held in the same regard, and that we should allow individuals to make choices while understanding the consequences of the choices that they have made. My recommended solution is that we recognize the fundamental right to personal autonomy. However, recognizing potential as well, we need to evaluate that when that right infringes upon the right of another person. In the case of abortion, I argue that we set the line at which abortive procedure can no longer be conducted at the point at which a fetus is viable outside of the womb. Respecting personal autonomy, again, we should establish that post viability, all procedures should be conducted in a manner in which 
the doctors seek to preserve the lives of both the mother and the child. If the mother does not want to carry her child to term, then she should be allowed to have an early induced labor, delivering the child so that it has a chance to live, while also respecting the autonomous choice of the mother. Now, how do you enforce this? Well, it's pretty simple. In accordance with our laws, the burden of proof would lie on the accuser, meaning that the state, or whoever is accusing the doctor of wrongdoing, would have to demonstrate and provide proof that any instance in which a child dies after viability occurred with the intent to harm. Finally, I want to pivot real quick. You see, the debate about abortion generally focuses on the rights of the mother. Justifiably so, because she has a child growing inside of her body, and it is her body, and she should be allowed to choose what she wants to do with her body. But we rarely ever talk about the father, and what the father wants, and what the father's rights are in situations where the mother wants to have an abortion. So what I'll say is that during that first period before viability in which the mother has the ability to choose an abortion, the father has no say. If the mom wants to have the abortion, the mom has the abortion, and the father doesn't get a say-so. However, we should give the father the ability to have an out as well. So, my recommendation to that is that if the father doesn't want to be a parent, either because he doesn't feel prepared or does not believe that he would be a good parent, we should give him a, the ability to back out. Now, that back out ability would be restricted to 21 weeks. After the 21 weeks, the father would be held responsible for the care of the child. Now, understanding that the mother can choose to deliver early after viability, this paternal option would provide time for the mother to determine if she wants to carry her child to term, knowing that she would be the sole parent, or if she wants to deliver early and waive her responsibilities as well. My proposal is not all-encompassing, and that proposal about the paternal option is probably going to be met with a lot of strife. But it's there, and it's there because I want to start a conversation about it. As of this time, that is my stance. And those are my recommendations in order to bridge the gap between the pro-life and pro-choice agendas. I'm open to debate. I'm open to discussion. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Snapchat. And if you're not a social media person, you can find me on my website. Shoot me a message. Let's have a conversation. Let's find a way to color outside those lines. This closes out the final installment on our opening series. There is far more to discuss on this topic, far more progress to be made, but for now, this is the end of the Cranbox Politics Analysis of Abortion. Coming up, we're going to delve into our national healthcare system. The research has begun, and I'm going to try a different approach to the blog writing process. Starting next week, I'll post a weekly blog with my thoughts on my research from the previous week. This podcast will be published on a monthly basis as a means by which to bring all of that research together. 
Don't forget to listen to this podcast and like, comment, and share from your favorite podcast platform. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe as well. You can share the blog too. Just go onto the website and share it on your favorite social media platform. The more people know about Cranbox politics, the more we will be able to initiate a conversation and truly find a way to bridge the gap and color outside the political lines. Until next time, I am your host, Carl Abel.